0: <laughs> The Elk Talk podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org.
1: The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new Performance Protein Bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order.
0: The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, Go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the gator premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have.
1: And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk podcast
0: is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code Elk Talk, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop.
1: Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing, Every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course.
0: And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it.
1: Morning, Corey. (laughs) Good morning, Randy. How's how's things in Bozeman, Montana? Smoky. You guys
0: sending Isn't all that it, smoke to us?
1: Yeah, we're getting it out of Oregon right now and it we had a big windstorm <laughs> I guess the night before last night and it blew a whole bunch of smoke over to us. Hmm. Well you just start blowing it to us. We,
0: I guess, maybe Montana needs some fires so we can send it over to the Dakotas or something.
1: There so, we go. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> I think our big fire, actually, that that we're getting all this smoke from, is uh, over by Salmon, right on the Montana Idaho border. By the sounds of that. Oh, it. is it? Yeah. So. Yeah, but that time, that time of year. It is August. Any more. It's like August, you just, in Montana, even before COVID, people walked around with masks in August because it's like you're here on firefighting detail or something. Yep. Oh, well. (laughs) I I just look at it and say, well, that's creating some good elk habitat in about two years. Hopefully no one gets hurt. Hopefully nobody's property gets hurt. But it's just a reality of the Rockies, I guess,
1: in August. Yep. Yeah, and I know uh, there must be a lot more fires than normal in Colorado this year because I've been getting a ton of emails from people that have archery tags in Colorado and they're very concerned that their yeah. unit's on fire and so there must be quite a few fires. I haven't kept up on that in Colorado this year, but yeah. it sounds like Colorado's on fire. Did, have you,
0: uh, looking at the the submissions we got from listeners in the last week, I think we have two emails from people who are going to be hunting Colorado. Uh, one is a question of, does the smoke uh, displace the elk um, or affect how the elk behave? And then another was, uh, do does a fire displace elk? Um, and I think the person... Knows that yeah, in within the fire perimeter, it's going to displace the elk. But I think what they were asking is, do elk move in advance of the direction of fire is coming? And if so, how f- you know how close do they have to be to the fire before it affects them? Because this guy said his unit has a uh, well, he said a big fire. I don't know what he means by big, but
1: uh, yeah, so. Yeah, Yeah, I've actually, we had uh, the area that we used to hunt a lot, caught on fire several years ago. And, you know, it was closed down because they were, you know, active fires wouldn't let us in there. The roads were all closed and everything. And then once they got it somewhat contained and under control, they opened the roads. And so we went in there and two experiences. One, we were calling to a bull Literally, there were stumps with flames coming out of them as we're walking up the hill to this elk. So I mean, he's in the fire perimeter. There's active flames. Uh, This bull's up there, you know, still calling, and which surprised me because it was a big fire. Um, I think that elk must have just went and found a wet place and hunkered down there, and the fire had to have gone around him. Uh, And then the other thing we. One of the biggest bulls we've ever killed in Idaho, we killed uh, that same year in the same general area. There wasn't an active fire on the hillside he was on, but it was just the smoke was so thick. And this big bull came in with the wind in his face. The wind was blowing from us to him. And he came walking right down the hill to, I think, 23 yards and never smelled us. So I think that smoke really messes with their sense of smell, which you just imagine they've got a hundred times better sense of smell than we do. And we know how much the smoke messes with our sense of smell. Yeah. I just imagine that that strong smoke smell like that, it probably messes with their ability to, to detect danger. Yeah. And,
0: uh, I, for me, I, you know, I, again, this is mostly rifle hunting, but I find that once, usually the fires are out by rifle season, you know, October. We've had enough winter, uh, early winter, or at least September rains to put out most of the fires. And uh, one thing I've found is that when when the fire ends, those uh, areas along the perimeter have some very high elk densities, and yep. I mean that's why. I, People say, Newberg, you're always hunting burns. Well, I'm not hunting burns per se. Uh, Yeah, after a year or two and it's grown back, I'll hunt it. But in the year of a burn, I will hunt that perimeter, that kind of one-mile or half-mile band where those elk have probably been displaced. And right on those edges— there's such perfect habitat. If you get a little bit of September rain, like you were talking, it'll start greening up. Not, not real perceptible, not like this great big green stuff that you see the second year of a burn, but we're talking little like forbs and grasses popping up. And I've seen elk on those edges within a couple of weeks after the fire. And, uh, I think they they hang out along those edges and within that one-mile-to-half-mile one band. And if you think about it from a density standpoint, all right, you've got a 10,000-acre fire. That 10,000 acres is probably not going to hold too many elk, especially in rifle season. But since they got displaced, it's not like they're going to go 30 miles away. They're just going to move a little ways. And that makes the elk densities sometimes quite a bit higher right around the periphery of a burn.
1: Yep. No, it's the same as, as a drought, you know, they're going to be concentrated. They, they get displaced from where they would normally want to be because in this case, there's not the livable habitat because of the fire. And so when they move, they move into other elk habitat where there's probably elk. And so it concentrates them there, uh, same as on a drought year like this year. You know, it's a lot of times find the water, you find the elk and, and in the limited water area, you know, Idaho, Montana, places like that, even on drought years, there's still water just about everywhere because you got springs and creeks and seeps that still produce water. But you get into Utah, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, states like that, and even parts of Colorado. On a drought year and there is no water that was the thing when I hunted Arizona I didn't realize there's no water sources in those units other than the man-made tanks I mean yep. those are critical to to wildlife surviving and a lot of times they have to truck in water to fill those tanks for the wildlife because there's not yep. just a, a creek running down a draw with water in it in most of those units and so if you if you do uh find a water source in some of those states during a drought year like this, you're most likely going to see a concentration of elk because they're going to be forced into those areas where there is water.
0: Yeah. Well, having just come back from Nevada 36 hours ago, I can vouch for the fact that it's a really dry year in a lot of places. There's been virtually no monsoon this summer in New Mexico, Arizona, southern Utah, southern Nevada. Uh, and even where we were at in the northern part of Nevada, it is dry. Uh, yep. But we were using that for our mule deer hunting, kind of looking at, all right, here's a spring that still has a little bit of water coming out of it. And we knew that the, the deer would concentrate there. And there were also elk concentrating there, but I don't know how I would have killed one of those elk other than sitting over water right now. And I think we touched on this in the last podcast: is the season dates. This unit I was deer hunting in the elk season dates are October fifteenth to October thirty first.
1: And for archery or rifle? For archery. Oh, so August fifteenth, August. 31st. Oh, what,
0: did I say October? I meant or, you, you I meant did, yeah, no, Oh, Yeah. Okay. I, Yep. Okay, august, yeah it's august, august 15th through the 31st and so, yeah. we, we saw these bull elk and uh i don't know what you do other than do the the water would be where you'd have to ambush them because when they'd leave the water they'd go bury themselves in these great big thick patches of aspens well how do you how do you spot and stalk in a Pile of aspens that you're not going to sneak through that stuff. Yep. They'll hear you coming for forever.
1: Yeah, so. it's not like a mule deer that might bed out on a you know open hillside with a rock outcropping or underneath a mahogany or patch of sagebrush in the shade there and give you an yeah. opportunity to stalk in. Yeah, when they start bedding in the middle of brush thickets and middle of aspen patches, it makes it hard to. Yeah, put together a, a stock on them. Well, that
0: gets us to some of these questions that I I pulled from the the contact emails that we get. Um, And we've got a ton of them in the last few weeks. Holy cow. I, I got yeah. out of the mountains of Nevada and loaded up my email when my truck bro- broke down in Elko on Monday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so fortunately, the dealership had uh, Wi-Fi and the number of email inquiries or contact us. Or they go to the Elkdocpodcast.com and click the
1: contact form. Is that where yep. these are coming from? Yep. You so, can just go to the website and enter that. And it goes, <laughs> both you and I end up getting it somehow through the yeah. <laughs> advancement of technology. And, yeah. and we do read them. I, I know we say that a lot, but <laughs> we don't get to respond to all of them and probably don't get to answer a, even a fraction of them. But we do read all of them. And the ones that stand out, you know, for like this time of year, where we're, we're going to talk about some of those topics that are fitting on the calendar right now yeah and uh when i went through
0: them like always i try to categorize them in general topics and and uh some of the questions were about calling tactics both from a strategy and a tactic standpoint general strategies and specific tactics in a dry year uh what kind of things do you do differently because last year was a very relative to the norm, was a wet year. So uh, the, the, the question, if I were to generalize it, is how do you change your general strategy? I think we touched on some of that about using uh, water uh, as a concentrating factor. But then also any specific tactics, whether it's calling, whether it's how you hunt or archery or rifle, uh, during a dry year so you had any i think the, the idea we already touched on uh, as a general strategy is find water in a dry year and you've yeah. increase increased your odds dramatically
1: but, yeah no there, and there's a lot of things to consider on a drought year uh you know even in the mountain states there's still probably going to be somewhat of a concentration due to uh the lack of moisture and because that moisture you know throughout the summer here I don't think we've had hardly any rain uh, nope. in the mountain states and so what that does is it changes the feed sources you know if yep. their feed sources all dry up then the elk have to move for the feed so it's not necessarily hey I've got water down in the bottom of this creek draw I can go down and get a drink there maybe there's no food where they're used to getting food. So you will see a concentration of elk a lot of times on years like this. And I think that tactics-wise, it doesn't change um, as far as hunting tactics. But what does change is, is how you locate those elk. And when I say tactics don't change, in the mountain states, uh, the rut usually isn't affected by the drought, you know, by, by a lack of water. You get into some of those desert states, though, and the rut will actually be muted considerably it will be you know be a huge decrease in the intensity of the rut and you know the the cows will still get bred uh, the bulls will still bugle a little bit, but it's just it's it's a very subdued rut compared to when they have water everywhere, and we've seen it you know several times. And people talk about you know during drought years, a bull that would have been you know three fifty is only three thirty five and just doesn't finish out his top end because there's no moisture the the last half of the summer, and you know I'm. Sure, you're the same way as I am. I I don't care if he's 350 or 335. It's, <laughs> you know, if he has short top ends because of the drought, that's okay with me. But yeah. um, you know, it, do, it does affect the antler growth. But I think even more noticeably uh, for most of us is it does affect in those desert states. It affects when they rut and how intense that rut is, which means sometimes they don't call as much. Sometimes they're, they're doing their rutting at night if there's a full moon. And so, you know, you do have to kind of adjust your hunting style to that. And, uh, you know, like when we were in New Mexico, it was hot and dry and it was full moon (laughs) and there were people everywhere and they just weren't running. They just, we were not, we couldn't buy a bugle. They were with the cows, but they just weren't.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, maybe the, I mean, the rut is still happening it's either happening at, more at night or it's just like you said, more subdued where they're like, you know what, it's 95 degrees and there's no water around here. I'm not going to run around and scream my head off all day long. I'm just going to do what I got to do to get my job done
1: here. <laughs> Which but, uh, makes me want to just pack around a barrel of water for them, so they'll start googling more. <laughs> uh, how how well, much could a fifty-gallon barrel of water weigh? Could I? Uh, could I pack let's that see. Up the mountain.
0: I think. What is it? Eight point three or eight point eight pounds <laughs> yeah. per, per gallon. So yeah, about four hundred and twenty, thirty pounds. Nothing yeah, for many. Okay. I was going to
1: say, that would probably take both of us on, on each mm-hmm. end of the barrel to carry that up the mountain.
0: I think you better bring Donnie with, because I'd probably just stand there and give instruction.
1: Man, I don't know. I I don't know if Donnie's going to hunt with me anymore. I took him on a motorcycle ride on Saturday to scout some new area. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I first thought was he wasn't going to be able to hunt with me because of, of injury. But then after, at the end of the day, I thought he's... He's not having fun. He may not come back and hunt with me this year, Hmm. but it, uh, I, I, so Dale, your, your cameraman, Dale is going to spend a little bit of time with us this fall. And I texted him yesterday and made sure he was comfortable on a motorcycle. And Donnie's kind of a a good, uh, judging measuring stick because we did uh, some scouting last weekend and everything was good. The first six miles. Yeah, And then we hit a a super steep rocky hill that had some switchbacks on it going down. And I ended up getting off the motorcycle and walking it down one of the switchbacks because there was about a six-foot vertical drop. And Mm. I knew if I tried riding down that, the way the trail hit flat and then it turned 90 degrees and it was straight off in front of that, I knew that – things wouldn't work good I would endo over the hillside and so I got off and kind of feathered the front brake going down that little rocky slope and hit the trail and pushed real hard on the handlebars so the back end didn't come over the top and it worked out well Donnie got to that point and I was 50 yards down the hill waiting for him and I was kind of waving my arms to get his attention and he looked at me and I made the motion like walking like get off and walk and yeah. He kind of sat there for a minute and looked at the switchback and then he put his feet on the pegs and turned the Ooh. the wheel down and I just thought oh this is not going to be good and his front tire hit the bottom And it was like watching a bull rider. He went up to the back of the seat and that motorcycle bucked him straight up in the air and came over and it (laughs) launched him, like literally launched him down the hill. And it was a steep, steep slope. Well, he did a full flip, landed on his back and kind of bunny hopped down the hillside a little bit and came to a stop. And the motorcycle, meanwhile, is doing its thing up there, bouncing around on the hill and it comes to a stop upside down upside-down handlebars down the hill. Well, it's steep enough that it kind of rests there for a minute, and then the weight and the gravity pulls the back end over, and Donnie's just sitting there, and I see it happen, and I screamed, look out, well, the motorcycle's still running, he couldn't hear, and, uh, you know, it's upside down, so it flips over, and right between the two tires, you've got the chain, and that area of the motorcycle grabbed him by the back of the helmet and just rolled him and the motorcycle down the hill another 10 or 12 yards and
0: I'm telling you right now, you are not taking one of my camera guys <laughs> on that
1: trip. I agree. We, we may, I, I agreed with Donnie that we would stop at the top of the hill before that switch back and wouldn't go any farther. I, uh, okay. But, wow. Yeah. It's all hmm. good to there. From there, the next 10 miles, took us about four hours it was just nasty boulders and rocks and switchbacks and steep and we got to the end where it came back out on the road we made a 26 mile loop and uh there was no physical possible way you could ride that trail backwards huh i uh, yeah your cameraman's safe dale dale's safe with us we won't take him on anything like that all right. Beca- and I say that because I need him for the rest
0: of the season. You know, I've, I've got four camera guys, but they're all slotted and scheduled at certain places in certain times. So it, you, we might not be friends if you hurt my camera guy doing something <laughs> like that. So well, the good news is
1: we need him after that, too, because he's going to go to Oregon with us after that. So I will, uh, I'll have, I'll have special interest in his safety as well.
0: Okay. Yeah, well, I asked him. I said, uh, "How handy are you on a motorcycle?" And like most thirty-some-year-old guys, he's like, "I got it." I'm thinking to myself, "Okay." And, uh, hope you don't come back looking like a hockey player because you lost your eight front teeth or something.
1: Uh, I I thought you'd be more worried about the camera gear than the cameraman, but well, you, you those guys have, you do have some compassion.
0: Those camera guys break so much gear. My, my These two $3,000 cameras we buy, they're like disposables with them. That's <laughs> what. I just go into B&H Photo and say, reorder, reorder. And so...
1: Yeah. so. They're yeah, like those I, disposable cameras. You dial. You know, used to have the dial for those that remember when we had film on cameras. You, you yep. dial it and you get twenty four of them, and sometimes you get twenty five or twenty six because the roll of film was a little bit longer. And then you yep. just take it in and drop it off to get exposed, and you go pick up the pictures, and they throw the camera away. So,
0: yeah, no, I, That's, I say that my uh, camera crew could break a logging chain with a rubber hammer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, was a camera guy driving your truck when it broke down
0: uh no oh I, I i'm trying to think of how i could blame him for that i give me time he was in the truck oh so. perfect yeah it's his fault then yeah yeah you, you ever hear that CW McCall song Wolf Creek Pass about they're coming down, <laughs> yeah. and and so he says Ed, I, I, I something like I, I don't, I'm not the kind to complain, but if you don't put some brakes on real soon, they'll be scraping us up with a fork and a spoon. And he steps <laughs> on it, and he looks at him and says, it's almost like stepping on a plum. <laughs> wow, we're coming down off the mountain there in, in uh, Nevada and we're, we got the truck fully loaded and I'm pushing on the brakes and I look at the guys. I'm like, we got a problem, fellas. Mm. Um, sh- slam it down in the lowest possible gear and we rumble down the hill. And by the time we get to Elko, even before that, my indicator is saying low brake fluid, low brake fluid. <laughs> and somehow oh, where the brake line connects on the, the hub of the rear uh, driver's side, there's a coupler that the brake line goes into and then that coupler attaches it to the brake housing. Well, that pulled free. I don't know how, but uh, a, a modern-day vehicle with you know all of our power brakes – doesn't work real well when you're out of hydro the the hydraulic brake fluid being absent means your brakes are absent also yeah so you kind of just put your flashers on and honk your horn like hey i'm coming through folks you get the hell out of the way (laughs) (laughs) not much else you can do no the camera guys were looking at each other like is he gonna do this well what else am i gonna do you know, I got AAA, but I'm not calling them out here. So. But anyhow, back to drought year strategies. We, we got distracted talking about Donnie and then talking about broken vehicles and stuff. The audience is probably wondering, is this what these guys do when they're out hunting? Is this the way the conversation goes? But uh, anyhow, uh, in rifle season during these r- drought years, kind of like you were saying, The elk are really concentrated. Um, You find these basins where after everything dries up, even at a faster pace and to a greater degree in August and September, by the time rifle seasons come around in October, the amount of higher quality forage on the hill is way less way, way less than it would be in a normal year or even in these drier, flatter areas of New Mexico, Arizona. Uh, like you were saying in archery season, it can, that pattern of concentration around water continues in rifle season. And, uh, so you're gonna, uh, my experience is that I find elk in fewer places, but when I do find them, I find them in really high densities. And, uh, it's it's probably a little more predictable if you use your your mapping tools and look where all the water sources would be whether they're man-made or they're uh natural uh those are the places they're going to be they're also probably going to be finding better forage on northeast slopes than they are on northwest slopes or or you know, so any anything in the south, 180 degrees of a slope is probably torched and off limits at this point. So, I'm looking more probably first and foremost at northeast slopes for food, straight north slopes for bedding cover, and then second choice of food would be more the northwest slopes. Um, and that's just my experience. I can't say that I've read any any scientific study that that shows that um and i often wonder are my personal experiences just anecdotal because those are the places i go so that's where yeah if you hunt mostly northeast slopes randy guess what you're gonna see most of your elk on northeast slopes
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think there's a reason you spend most time there it's because you you get into realizing, Hey, that's, that's where we saw the elk. I'm going to go back to that area. And so I think that, uh, I think the correlation is because you find elk there, not <laughs> not because yeah. you don't find elk there because you spend time there. You, you spend time there cause you find elk there. Yeah. And you know, there's these
0: snow tell sites and other, uh, weather stations that will tell you what the cumulative moisture has been for whatever period of time you're looking. And, you'd be surprised how sporadic and random it is where one drainage might have double the amount of moisture than a drainage three miles, five miles away. And I look at those things and it's like, oh, wow, that weather site says they've it, it's still a dry year but it's not as dry and and that's just the random patterns of where the thunderstorms hit and where the precip hits and to what degree and i look at those to say all right this drainage it, it might all be the same big unit but there's certain basins or drainages that were the beneficiary of a higher percentage of moisture and knowing the moisture is critical for forage, and knowing that forage is critical for accumulating elk, those I use those little tidbits as kind of my uh, determining factor of all right. These four locations all have general characteristics, no matter what year. But in this year, drainage two has higher moisture, so I'm probably going to make drainage two my number one spot. So, yep. Can't say it always works, but as a general rule, uh, it seems to put us in in elk during rifle season when uh, compared to a wetter year when they're definitely far more dispersed across the landscape. And when you do find them, you're finding smaller groups of cows or even the, the bulls are all right, there's four in this bachelor group and there's a pair over here, whereas in these really dry years, sometimes you'll find a bachelor group of six or eight. Um, And so, back to my point of you find them in fewer locations, but when you find them in these drought years, you usually find them in larger groups and higher densities in the areas that they are in.
1: Yep. Have you, uh, I mean, we talk about water and everything, and I just... Mm -hmm. You know, I I really feel the elk will definitely be concentrated, but what are your thoughts on on the feed sources being a critical part of that due to a lack of moisture and and creating a lack of quality feed? Yeah, I I think it's it's kind of the same where,
0: especially if you're cow elk hunting, uh, the cows are... They know where the best feed is. They are so selective. They will find the best feed and it's going to concentrate them in these locations. Uh, but then you get later in the year when you're hunting a post rut or a late season pattern and the bulls are looking for sanctuary. Well, they seek out sanctuaries that have the best food right nearby. In other words, within a few hundred yards because they don't want to be moving very far because they understand that old Fred, you know, he went on a on a roundabout last year looking for food. And uh, someone gave him the victory lap down to the Forest Service campground there. Uh, <laughs> so they figure that out and their sanctuary locations are probably going to change a little bit where the places are going to go hang out to get through the post rut period when the majority of hunting pressure is in the on the public lands uh, and so uh, again I whatever unit it is I'll have 20 spots identified as potential sanctuaries in these post rut and late season hunts but in a drought year there's going to be four or five of them that really grab my attention because they're in places where either there was more more moisture than the other spots or It's uh, just a drainage that has a year round spring that never seems to dry up. Well, that kind of uh, a spring like that also means there's probably more uh, uh, surface type or close to the surface water, and it's going to be a greener, lusher drainage. And so, if there's a sanctuary and a drainage like that, that bulls prefer they're going to use that in a drought year more than they are one of these sanctuaries that's far away from everything else where the spring only runs in wet years or the the moisture patterns have left that other sanctuary pretty dry and, and barren of any type of forage uh they're going to use the one that has forage because The job of an elk, of a bull elk on public land in the post-rep period is twofold. One, avoid hunters, and so they know where to do that. But yet, they got to start at least keeping their nutritional plane level. They can't continue to lose weight like they have the previous five or six weeks in the peak of the rut. So they are looking for places where they can put on the feed bag and try to reserve or conserve what remaining fat they might have. So um, I know none of that is super specific and it's rather general, but when you start looking at enough of these places, the other thing you can do is uh, I go to a lot of the uh, reports when when they issue or uh, analyze grazing allotments on national forests, let's say uh, they have to discuss the competition the domestic livestock on that allotment would have with native wildlife normally elk you know or mule deer and a lot of times in there they discuss what those forages are in wet years and in dry years so if one of those studies about that allotment uh, and they're hard to find but if you are good with google you'll find them uh, it, it'll say, and, and some of these are also just general, not for a specific allotment, but for a forest who's putting together their forest management plan or BLM, the, the, the range officers, the conservation officers will have this information that there are difference in what the prefer, preferred food sources are in dry years versus wet years. And if you know that information, that is your ticket to finding these little pockets of where elk are going to be. Um, say you're in Colorado, and it says that elk switch heavily to food source X away from Gamble's Oak uh, in a dry year because the, the oak crop fails, the, the acorn crop fails on those small oaks or whatever it might be. I'm just using that for an example, but there are certain things, certain preferred food sources that do better in dry years and some that do better in wet years. So know what those are, know where they grow in those dry years, and if you're on a food source or uh, hunting a food pattern, you're going to find more elk with that information in
1: hand. Very cool. Yeah, I didn't realize that. So and I all think of that's, the, you know, that's probably, I would say probably my greatest weakness is understanding what elk eat. And we get a lot of questions, you know, from people saying, hey, we'd love to have a biologist on what, what do elk eat? What's their food source? And it changes so much from yeah. unit to unit, even within States that it's hard to, to say, you know, to do a podcast on, Hey, here's what elk are looking for. We'd have to get a biologist from you know, each state to come on to talk intelligently about it because it is so different. But yep. that is uh, that is one thing that I really struggle with is knowing the exact feed sources that they're eating at different times of the year.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a, you give a great example. If you had uh, an Idaho biologist, you'd need one who could tell you what the food sources are in the panhandle of Idaho because it's a completely different habitat type versus one who is a biologist down in the Owyhee, uh southwest part of the state, which is desert, you know, Great Basin-type country, versus one in southeast Idaho. So when we get that question and we're somewhat general in our answer, it's just because it, it's so varied. And so for me, I always try to give people the the tools of how to find that information and it's it's a lot of reading it's a lot of research and some usually you go down five or six uh documents that you think might help only to find there's of all those five or six documents only one of them really has anything worthwhile well then you read what it says based on the study and there might be three preferred food sources. Okay, then you gotta say, are those food sources abundant in drought years, in wet years? Does it not matter what the moisture pattern is? Where do they grow? Certain soil types? Do they grow at certain elevation bands? Um, stuff like that. One thing I find is a general rule, and this gets back to a video we just released today on our youtube channel about how i use the new 3d mapping system from gohunt is they have these elevation bands that you can click on so it just highlights certain elevation bands and you kind of eliminate the rest of it so in a drought year i know that a post drought pattern is just about always going to happen in the transition range between summer and winter range. Well, that's a pretty big, you know. Let's use Colorado. <laughs> that might be a four thousand foot band of of difference from eleven five to seventy five hundred. Well, where in that thousand or four thousand feet of elevation band is it? Okay, I know it's a drought year, so I know that the likelihood is the elk are going to be even lower. Because that there's going to be more forage there, there's more cover to keep the vegetation from drying up as earlier. Uh, sometimes the springs are are located lower, so it, you kind of have to look at those things and and do your best to analyze. All right, if it is a drought year and and maybe someone has a different experience where in a drought year no they're higher, but my experience is in a drought year they're they're lower and closer to the winter range. I click on those bands and say, all right, instead of looking from 9,000 to 11.5 or, or from 75 to 11.5, I'm just going to look from 75 to 9,000. So now I've been able to isolate my e-scouting to even a narrower band. And so those, those are just general things that you find in doing all this research. And I, I wish there was a shortcut to that. Um, maybe that's something we add to the university of elk hunting course, if we can, yeah. if we can figure out how to do it in a valuable manner, uh, useful yep. manner. But, uh, yeah, I'd say if, if we look at our questions here on the elk talk pod podcast, a huge number of them are, what are the elk eating in my area? Well, uh, <laughs> that depends on, are you going to hunt low or are you going to hunt high? Uh, is it a drought year is it a wet year um, you know yeah the, because uh, like go use New Mexico and Arizona uh, there are certain the, the, I would say those two states and to some degree Nevada Utah maybe Colorado are super susceptible and highly impacted by the strength of the monsoon season in July and August yep. well. The grasses there that are dependent upon those monsoons might not grow. So the elk have to shift to other food sources. Well, what are other food sources in those areas? Okay, in Arizona, I know there's a lot of cliff throws, and they will eat on that. They prefer to eat it as one of their winter forages, but they might have to shift to it earlier. Um, So what does that do to how they... R- move across the landscape, and where you're going to find them. So, there's certain grasses in New Mexico. Uh, they're, they're, I'd say New Mexico has some of uh, some of those forests, like the Gila and the Lincoln, and other national forests that uh, have amazing research out there about what happens to their forage in uh, certain moisture patterns and. You can, again, it takes some connecting of the dots. Uh, None of this is stuff that gets handed to you in a, you know, a cue card with five bullet points. (laughs) Unfortunately. Right. But I I just, you know, if there's one good thing about being a CPA, you get to read a lot of tax law. And that gets old after a while. So I'll read about the first third of a tax law and I'll be like heck the best. I'm going to go do some elk research. I'd rather read about elk forage patterns.
1: <laughs> so, yeah,
0: you know, all these things I've stumbled across and found over the years has just been a function of my own research and interest, and and asking the same questions of myself that we get from these readers. Uh, yep. The uni- the universities a lot of the universities, if you can find the land grant university that has the agricultural school in that state, and usually it's the, you know, Montana State University, uh, Oregon State University, or, uh, usually University, university of or, Idaho. Yeah, yeah, whatever it is. Uh, those universities have access and have public information from all of the you know, PhD and masters projects that students have done and, and then within their own university they get a lot of funding for their ag schools. Don't overlook those places either. Uh, I would say New Mexico has again, I because I I like hunting there uh, when I can draw a tag, which isn't this year. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the their, their university systems have some great research about wildlife and uh, how wildlife is impacted by certain grazing. And that when you look at it, when, when you read it, the first time I read it, it's always like, man, that, what did I just read there? You know how sometimes you drive down the highway for 20 miles and it's like, I don't remember anything about the last 20 miles. My mind has been somewhere else. Sometimes when I read these scientific type, you know, biological, eco, whatever you want to call them, (laughs) reports, I'm reading it, but I'm not comprehending it. And then I got to go back and kind of read it again and read a couple paragraphs and just think about what it's saying, And then when I get through it, it's like, okay, what they're saying is that the AUMs allowed for this grazing allotment are restricted because this drought pattern causes more competition with native wildlife or whatever it might be. And then I look at, all right, what are those uh, plants or those feed sources that this study is talking about where the competition might occur? Or... Sometimes it'll say, you know what, there is no competition. Domestic cattle are more into this food source. The elk and the mule deer are more into this food source. There might be the same occupation of the same terrain, but there's not competition for the forage. Or maybe there is a lot of competition for the forage. So it's just stuff like that that I I wish I had it in a... Mm -hmm like I said in a little cue card of five points but it's 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 not that simple but anyone listening I can assure you that that kind of information is out there you just got to dedicate the hours of research and reading to get to it and then take that information and apply it to the conditions you're going to have when you head out for your hunt yep
1: and the book what what's the book North American Elk Uh,
0: oh yeah the Elk and Elk Ecology by Jack Ward Thomas Yeah, yeah which uh,
1: nope. <laughs> we we sold them out we, we started talking about it on here completely sold out anywhere that had that book there's no longer available i actually sent an email to the uh the publisher and said hey yeah. is this going to be back out And they said we don't have plans to to print any more of these and i said what if we paid for the printing of them because i know we can sell them right. and i never heard back from them so yeah. i don't know why they don't want to print that book but in that book there is uh there's information on elk forage uh what they yep. eat you know it's it's more general I mean, it's very specific, but it doesn't cover each individual state necessarily. But man, you want to talk about reading on elk ecology and habitat that will glaze your eyes over and make your brain go numb. (laughs) There is more information in there, scientific information about elk and what they eat and where they live and what they do and how the rut happens. And it's like, oh, we're we're, we're way complicating this for me. My mind needs it on a cue card with five bullet points.
0: Uh, but th- I I talked to Chris Smith, who used to work for Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks. He's now at the Wildlife Management Institute. And he emailed me. He's like, Randy, quit telling people about this book. We're out of print and we don't have any <laughs> plans. I said, Chris, I want to buy the rights to it. He's like, no, I don't think we'll do that. And he did tell me they are considering making it a digital uh Ooh. publication i don't know if that means audio or just you know you can download it but it would be about five terabytes of a download so you might have to send them your hard drive and say here load it on my <laughs> hard drive and mail the hard drive back to me as big as it is but the, the, the value i've found in that book is after reading it a few times i started following the pattern of how jack ward thomas and all the the contributors to the, to that masterpiece take information sort out what's relevant to elk and then apply it to elk and following kind of their processes of doing that is what's helped me in my own independent research of trying to find this information specific to the area that i'll have the tag
1: yep and that, and that's it too. there's good generalized guidelines that can be applied but you still like you said it's just you can't get a checklist of here you're going to colorado unit whatever here's what you need to know this is their feed source this is the calling tactics this is the weather it just it doesn't happen like that but there are resources that will help you solve that that puzzle that book is great there is some good stuff in there but it's it's not impossible to get. It's on uh Amazon. The 1982 uh version of it is on Amazon for $295. If you want the <laughs> updated one, uh that's more recently updated, it starts at $865 on Amazon. So
0: and everybody blames me for that. You know, you used to be able to buy this on Amazon for 35 bucks. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not the one. You give me the publishing rights to that book, and I'll have it available to anyone who wants to buy it. Yep. But, anyhow, uh, we we spent a lot of time on drought and how it affects things. Considering we have five general points we want to cover, and we spent the first forty five minutes on the first one. I don't know what we're gonna do for the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> People are gonna to have to we have to give them an advance warning and in, in the intro. Hey, for this one, bring a lunch because you're gonna be here for a while.
1: <laughs> and they're all listening right now going, I wish you would have put that in the intro. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so well, let's just, uh, yeah, I was gonna say let's let's maybe pick a couple of these that maybe relate mm-hmm. to each other and we can Yeah, go into those.
0: Here's one I think, and I'm going to serve this up to you because you did such a great job last time talking about August early season elk strategies and tactics. Uh, Hopefully this one, this next one will be somewhat relevant time-wise to the upcoming, what I call the pre-rut phase, which is that first, I don't know, seven to 10 days of September that I call pre-rut. It's It's a really rapid period of transition where elk go from their summer pattern to peak rut in a short period of time. Uh, So a bunch of the questions were, what is the behavior of bulls during that early September period? And how do you, what's your calling strategy, uh, if there is a general answer to that, or maybe you want to get into the specifics of what do you do differently in that early September period compared to what you do in August versus what you do in mid to late September?
1: Yeah, well, and it's again, take all this with a grain of salt because it changes by area and by weather patterns and and all of that. But in a nutshell, like we talked in the last episode, uh, in August, especially you know mid August through late August, those bulls are separating from their from their bachelor groups. Uh, you've got and you'll find there will be bulls hanging out together the first week of September. Sometime you know young raghorns, uh, they might not go into a solo staging area uh they're still they might be hanging out with the herd they might be with with the cows and they might start bugling early thinking they're the herd bull this year Uh, but for the most part the the more mature bulls are going to split up from their bachelor groups during that time frame they're going to go to to what I call a staging area, the bull's bedroom. He's just by himself. He wants left alone. He's uh, starting to get irritable. He's, you know, a lot like us as elk hunters during that same period of time. Elk season's getting close. We want left alone. We want to go out into our man cave and go through our gear. Uh, we don't want to be bothered. And, uh, so anyway, they, they go into that area. They're rubbing their antlers. I saw some really cool video on Instagram today of, a. Uh, this year, rubbing, rubbing the velvet off and, uh, they're rubbing the velvet off. They're, uh, they're just not moving far. They're staging, they're getting ready for the rut. Uh, and then as you get into that first week of September, you know, the, the first through the seventh, let's even go to the 10th, first of the 10th. Right. And it's kind of, you know, it, it's the early season to pre-rut transition there. And during that time, I would use a lot of the same tactics uh, that we discussed in the last episode. Those bulls are still, a lot of them are going to be in their bedrooms. They're going to be solo. Uh, they're going to be even more aggressive. They're going to be even more vocal. And finding an Elka, a mature bull during this time, is probably my favorite time. To target a mature bull, if I'm going to call him in, just because really? they haven't got with the cows yet, um, and and again, if we're talking Arizona, those big bulls probably aren't talking at all during that first week of September. Hmm. Um, they're probably not hanging out with cows during that first week of September. But you come to Idaho or Wyoming or Montana, and they're starting to think about the rut. There there may be a couple cows that are coming into estrus a little early. Uh, that bull Donnie shot last year on August 30th. He was not afraid to bugle. He was with cows, but the difference is... When he went to bed down during the middle of the day, he left the cows. He was with them feeding in the morning. He was bugling. He was checking them out. But the cows went up and bedded in a completely different area than where he bedded during the middle of the day. And when we found him that evening, he was still by himself and not with the cows. And so those are are easy Mm -hmm. targets during that first through the 10th time frame. Um, They might be hanging out with cows a little bit. They might be bedding by themselves. They're not going to be as aggressive as far as you know, interested in rutting. But when you get in close to them, it can be just an incredible uh, encounter with yeah. uh, with with some crazy good calling. Um, so there, there's a lot of advantages during that time. They haven't been pressured uh, by other hunters. They, you know, haven't been pressured for probably nine or 10 months by other hunters. So they, they aren't as cautious. They aren't with the cows. So you don't have all of those eyes and ears that you normally have once they get with the cows, Mm -hmm. uh, they aren't with the cows. So they are more apt to, to leave where they're at and come to you instead of being stuck to the cows there and, and worried about another bull coming and taking the cows. So I, I honestly, I, Probably would be more aggressive in calling during that time of year uh, hmm. than than timid. So aggressive meaning
0: more bugles and less cow calls?
1: Uh, not necessarily. Uh, last year, you know, August thirtieth, I used cow calls all day long on that bull, and he was just slow coming up the hill, and I knew that we were we were running out of time. Uh, it was the, the wind with the thermals were going to switch any minute. And I knew we had to kind of escalate that and get him in quicker. Uh, so I switched, I, I used cow calls all day and he was coming up the hill to the cow calls, but I think he was just feeding his way up the hill. I think he just Mm -hmm. thought that I was the cows that he'd been hanging out with all day and he was coming back up to, to feed with them and so he bugled back at one point he was probably 150 200 yards away and i cut him off with a challenge bugle and it's the first time i'd bugled at him in close i'd located him earlier that afternoon with location bugle and then went back to cow calls and we got in close and i hammered him with that challenge bugle and he was in donnie's shooting lane i don't know 30 or 40 seconds later wow (laughs) so you know again it's you you just picture in your mind what's going on here's this mature bull he's by himself he's bedded by himself he knows the rut's coming but it's not there yet he hears some cows up the hill so he's going to go up and check them out and he gets up there and he's talking to the cows he's bugling his way up there not in any hurry not thinking hey the rut's happening and then all of a sudden another bull is standing right there between him and the cows and he talks to the cows, and then this other bull screams at him. He's like, "Whoa, buddy, you're you're awful close to my bedroom. I was hanging out with him this morning. I think you and I need to to have a face to face encounter here." And he comes up the hill, and so you just you know doing that from 400 yards away, he's going to be like, "Huh." Another bull's up there at the cows. He can have them tonight. They aren't ready to breed yet. I'll just hang out down here where I've got my little bedroom established. And as long as that other bull doesn't get too close, there's no need for me to get worked up. But getting get in close to him and get him thinking about the cows and thinking that they're talking to him. And then all of a sudden another bull's there challenging him. It, it's, a, it's just a natural reaction. They, they can't help it. They want to fight. You're, yeah. you're too close to them. They're territorial. It's close to the rut, testosterone, all these things. It's just, man, it's exciting.
0: <laughs> so that leads me to two questions. Uh, hopefully I won't forget them. Uh, but the first one is when you use terms like uh, challenge bugle, locating bugle, uh,
1: is all of that available?
0: Uh, I mean, you go into detail of what those are in your
1: university course, right? We do. Yeah, I I go into, you know, how to use the calls, how to make those calls, when to use them, uh, all of that. But there is, uh, if you go to YouTube and go to the Elk 101 YouTube page, Uh, In there, we just actually launched uh, a new episode of In the Zone, which In the Zone is a a series we do where we take previous hunts and we break them down. So we talk about what we had to do in that situation, whether it's raking that works, whether it's uh, being very mobile. You know, the collar back behind the scenes, sometimes you have to play to what the bull wants and you've got to do different things and, and be mobile moving around to pull that bull into your setup and the one we actually just launched uh this week or just published this week is it's titled using thermals and terrain to call elk in close it's episode five of in the zone but it is donnie's hunt from last year in idaho on august 30th and so we break down the calling we break down how we use the terrain to make that wool feel comfortable to come in uh, how we had to hurry up and and get aggressive because the thermals were about to change but with them not being changed yet how we used them to our advantage and so that's Hmm. that's out there on the youtube channel if people want to if listeners wanted to go and check out what we've just been talking about here and, and see it in action cool and then
0: the second question is you often hear people say your your best chance to kill one of these older, more mature bulls is this pre-rut period before they get with the cows. You agree with that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, and it, and it's still possible. I love to call herd bulls away from the herd, uh, but again, it's everything has to be right. You have to pay attention to so many more things that it's a lot more difficult. That bull is focused during the peak; His sole focus is breeding a cow. Yep. And once those cows start coming into estrus, he is he, he's just tirelessly harassing that cow. And mm-hmm. he will not leave her alone. And he'll go from cow to cow to cow mm-hmm. as they come into estrus. And for you to be back 200 yards away trying to convince him that there's something more urgent he needs to come and check out... Is, is really tough. So during that, you know, I, I really like that first 10 days of September. If you know where a big bull is, or you know where his hideout is, you know where his, his bedroom is, you can march right in there. And if you can get him to talk, it can be a lot of fun and it can be a, a highly efficient time to hunt them. As we go from the 10th through about the 18th, that mm-hmm. next, I, I would call that the true pre-rut. You know, the first 10 days would be the a mix between early season and pre-rut. The 10th through yep. the 18th uh, is truly when the bulls are leaving their staging areas. They are finding the cows. They're establishing dominance. They are uh, establishing their harems. They are very aggressive. They're getting more vocal. And during that time is a great time to, to hunt, those more mature herd bulls as well, as well as the younger bulls who have been hanging out with the cows for the previous 10 days thinking, hey, I'm a herd bull. You know, they've gotten pretty confident and now this herd bull comes in and runs them off and they're desperate to get back with a herd. And so that 10th through the 18th time frame, a lot of times is probably if I had to pick a week, that would be it. Uh, just because you do get the the benefit of they still haven 't been called to a lot they 're more vocal now uh, they 're moving they're with the cows uh, they're becoming more concentrated because several bulls are now showing up to the cows to to compete for the cows uh, the ones that are getting beat up are mad they're looking for another you know they're looking for another little cluster of cows that maybe a, a less dominant bull is hanging out with. Uh, several years ago, we killed three elk in a 24-hour period within 100 yards of each other, and I think it was on the 16th, 17th, somewhere right in there. And it was that exact situation. All the cows had spent their summer right here, and overnight, all of these mature bulls show up and they're competing for these cows. And it was just it was magical. We just literally hit it right, and uh, just an incredible time to to hunt elk. From that 18th on, I think we get into peak rut, those bulls have established dominance. They are locked in on breeding cows, and it just becomes more difficult. It, it's not impossible. It's just more difficult. Uh, you'll have a lot more vocal interaction. You'll hear a lot more bugles during that time frame, but to actually turn a, a mature herd bull away from the cows becomes more difficult. hmm well, you
0: you, you kind of walked right into the next question, Corey.
1: <laughs> How do you do that?
0: Uh, well, that, but this person has asked, I've located cows this summer, and this the email just came in the other day, so I think they're even talking here in August, uh, and they are consistently in the same general location. Will they move due to hunting pressure in archery season? Will the bulls come to them where they're at in September? And if so, about what time will those bulls show up? That's (laughs) that's kind of three questions. Pick whichever you do or don't want to answer.
1: I think hunting pressure does affect them, but it takes quite a bit, really. You know, we've hunted the same elk on the same hillside for three or four days in a row, and they still come back and do the same thing. Those cows come down to the same water source. They go back up and bed in the same area, and that bull is just tagging along with them. So. It does take a bit of hunting pressure, uh, and even if they do get displaced, they typically aren't going to go a long ways. They're going to just go to the next little pocket where they feel safe and where there's food and water, and that bull is just along for the ride at this point. You know, he's going wherever the cows are going. The cows are the ones that are concerned about staying safe. He's only concerned about the cows, so... Um, I wouldn't be, you know, if you're hunting right next to a main road and there's 17 camps set up in a one mile stretch (laughs) and those cows have been right there in the same meadow where six wall tents now are, yeah, they're going to, they're going to move. But if it's just, uh, you know, there's two or three of you hunting the same drainage and those cows have been there all summer, I, I wouldn't be as concerned that they're going to move obviously i don't like any hunting pressure where i'm at just because you know you get a couple people competing for the same elk and it just changes a lot of tactics and you sometimes have to rush and don't get to be patient and it just it makes it more difficult but yeah um, so
0: if this person's watching a group of cows sometime in early september there's going to be a few bulls swinging through to check them out but they're probably going to be the biggest bull magnet by about September 10th.
1: Yeah, there there will probably be a bull with the cows uh, by the 1st of September. And it might be the the bull, it might be the one that stays with them throughout the throughout the season. But what I've what I found is it's usually a younger bull that comes in. And I'm not saying a raghorn necessarily, but a a bull that is not as dominant will come in early and find those cows and he will bugle and he will act like he's the herd bull. But sometime around that 10th through 15th time frame is when the real herd bulls will show up. And we saw it in Arizona. Arizona was a little later. It was like the 21st, 22nd when when the big herd bulls showed up. And there was a bull that was by himself that we were focused on there uh, for two days by himself on the 21st. He had two cows on the 22nd. He had four or five cows. Um, hmm. So he was there collecting cows during that you know, fall equinox time frame. Uh, I think in, in the mountain states, it happens a little sooner. And I think those mature bulls spend a little bit more time with the cows ahead of the peak rut. They establish those harems, and then they might hang out with them for a week before the cows actually start coming into estrus and they actually start breeding. Uh, But, you know, it's those bulls will come to the cows. The bulls come to find the cows. So if I'm setting out trail cameras or I'm doing scouting in the summer, I'm looking for the biggest group of cows I can find because a big group of cows is going to attract more mature bulls if there's two or three cows there might only be one bull that shows up and he might know hey i'm keeping my i'm low profile here because i don't want to lose these two or three cows because i have to travel a long ways to find another one Um, but you get in there where there's 35 40 cows hanging out there's going to be two or three mature bulls and the satellite bulls that are in there and it's going to be a bee's nest for a few days during (laughs) that 10th, 15th time frame Uh, The good kind of bee's nest, not the kind you step on in Oregon when you're hunting Roosevelt. (laughs) Uh,
0: Well, I get excited thinking about those bee's nest of bulls. Yeah. So, uh, which uh, we're kind of going through the last of these here, Um, and again, let's talk about solo hunting. Yeah, Yeah. that's what I wanted to get to because it's somewhat it's so situation specific, but I think there's yeah. some general ideas you can give people if you're a solo hunter and you're doing your calling setups, you know, what are the basics? Are you more aggressive, less aggressive? Do you just kind of read what the bull is saying? Do you stay stationary? Do you call and move anticipating where they're going to come in or how do you, <laughs> how
1: do you answer yeah. that generic question? <laughs> so, but I guess to, to answer that question, probably need to back up a little. My calling tactic always remains the same. I use cow calls. Well, I'll back up even from there. I locate the bull first using a location bugle. And once I get that, you know, the bull might be a half mile away, wherever he's at. Then I quit bugling. So I, I don't want him to think... Uh, there's an aggressive bull up there and he's probably coming to me. I don't want to get him fired up and make him come to me right then. I want to be in control of where I set up. So once I get that bull located, then I move in quietly and try to cut the distance significantly if I can, if I can get within that 150, 200 yards That's great. Hopefully the bull continues bugling so that I can keep him pinpointed. Uh, If not, I might have to locate bugle again as I move in just to be able to say, okay, he's definitely on this side of the draw or no, he's around on that bench, you know, and and pinpoint where he's at. Uh, But once I start moving in close, I'm going quiet and I want the, I want the advantage of getting in and finding that perfect setup. I don't want that bull to come running to me and me being a, in a bad setup because the setup is so critical when you're calling an elk. And it'll be even more critical when we talk about uh, solo tactics. But that, that setup I'm looking for is if I have a caller and I'm the shooter, if I have a caller, I'm going to put that caller behind me. And the reason that we want him behind, and, and, you know, people always ask, you want him 40 yards, 60 yards, 100 yards? The terrain is going to dictate that. That setup that we're going into is going to dictate that. And what we want to have happen is that bull comes to the calls, and he doesn't see the location where the caller's calling from before he gets into the shooter's setup. Because once a bull gets to a point where he he can look down the hill, even if it's 150 yards, and there's a clump of brush there, And he knows that sound, that last bugle came from that clump of brush. If he gets there and doesn't see an elk, he's probably going to stand there and hang up. And we talk about, you know, the hang up all the time. And that's Mm -hmm. why a lot of times that bull will get to a point he can see where the calling is coming from and he doesn't see an elk. And he's like, eh, something's not right. And so he'll stand there. He's not nervous. He's not going to leave necessarily. But he'll stand there and look down the hill until he sees an elk. And a lot of times you'll get that nervous bark from an elk where he'll bark a couple times because he's frustrated. He's like, I hear you, calling, but I don't see you. And I'm -hmm. I'm frustrated. You need to show yourself. Uh, So it's important when you set up that that caller is able to be in a place where he can pull the bull all the way into the shooter's setup before that bull gets to that point where he can see where the call is coming from. So you, you get that. You get everything set up just right. Then the caller gives a cow call and again, we're within 150, 200 yards, you give that cow call, the bull's gonna respond to it typically. I mean, there's, I can't imagine very many situations during September when you get within 150 or 200 yards of a bull and he doesn't know you're there, and you cow call and he, he's quiet. Typically, he's gonna respond. And when he responds, you know, if, if he responds right away really aggressively, I know, man, he's really fired up about a cow, I'm gonna give him more cow calls. And if I can tell he's coming my direction, that's all I'm going to do. I have no reason to bugle at that point. He's interested in the cow calls. He's coming to the cow calls. If I bugle, he may or may not continue coming in. So I'm going to mm-hmm. give him cow calls. Once he hangs up, if he won't come into the cow calls, if he's sitting down there going, why don't you come down to me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just sit here. I'm a big dominant bull. There's no reason for me to come up there. You come down to me. That's when I escalate it to the challenge bugle. And I cow call, the bull responds, and then I hammer him with a challenge bugle. And all of this applies to a two-person setup, but it Mm -hmm. also applies directly to the solo setup. So if you're hunting by yourself, it's the same thing. The, The thing that changes is now you don't have a caller back behind you. So your setup has to be such that the bull has to be close enough to shoot before he can see where the call is coming from. So you want to set up in a little bit thicker terrain. You want to set up uh, where that bull has to come into 30 yards before he can see the bush that you're calling from. And you know, a lot of times he's going to be frontal. A lot of times you know, your, your shot selection is going to be more difficult when you're hunting by yourself. But there's one thing i found that I use religiously if I'm hunting by myself, and I call it the ventriloquist effect. But you just have to broadcast your bugle or your cow calls somewhere other than right where you're sitting and Hmm. you know if you take your bugle tube and you turn it behind you and angle it a little bit and you cow call a little bit softer it makes that cow call sound like it's 30 yards behind you and so now that bull doesn't have your exact location pinpointed he's thinking it's a little bit back farther and he's going to come into your shooting lane a little bit easier than if you turn the tube right to him and you cow call to him he has you pinpointed within a foot. He knows exactly where you're sitting. And if you muffle it just a little bit and cow call through your tube and, and point it away from the bowl, he's not able to pinpoint it as well. And that just gives a, a solo hunter a little bit more of an advantage. The other thing you can do is if you are back in that thicker area and there's a really good opening up ahead of you 20 or 30 yards, you can cow call or bugle from where you're at and then slip ahead really quietly and get up into that opening. Problem with that is, is once you're in those close quarters, you start moving around and your, your chances of bumping that elk or him seeing your movement go way up. So it has to be the right situation to be able to get away with that movement. <clears throat> Wow, <clears throat> that makes it a lot harder. It does, yeah. Solo hunting when you're trying to call in an elk is incredibly difficult, but it's it's also incredibly fun because you get to be the caller and the shooter, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know you get to, you get to do both of the fun things at the same time. Where when you're a caller shooter setup, you know it's it's still I think it's way more efficient to have a two person setup. Uh, But you do miss out on, you don't get to be there, you get to be the caller, but you don't always get to see the shot. And as the shooter, you got to usually be pretty quiet and be out there and and not get to engage in that vocalization with the elk. And so there is some, some give and take, a little bit of sacrifice that's made to increase that efficiency. Yeah. Wow. Now,
0: anybody listening to this, if it doesn't work... Call Corey, not me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It'll work. It's guaranteed. Guaranteed, uh, guaranteed or your money
0: back. Money back. We do have a money back guarantee on this podcast. Any money you spend to listen to this podcast, we will refund for the life of the podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and and make sure you look at the fine print down below because, yeah. the, you know, internet services, other things that you're paying for are not... Not apply for <laughs> this money back guarantee. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or yeah. you keep sending us bills for their internet service because that's required to listen to the podcast. And yeah,
0: well, uh, I'm doing my e scouting for my Colorado elk hunt this year. Mm-hmm. I have a first season rifle tag, October 10th through the 14th, and in the process of doing that, I you know you Google elk colorado and other terms and up pops my uh, most recent newsletter from rmef that they have granted to colorado 2.57 million dollars for this granting cycle uh, wow. that's gonna make a big difference um it's and here's kind of how rmef does it so, it's 611000 of RMEF direct grant money, and they go out and find partners to say, hey, if we grant this to Colorado Parks and Wildlife, will you match $1, $4, whatever? So, in addition to the $611,000 RMEF has put in, they've went out and drummed up another $1.9 of of money from partners that will match
1: this stuff, so... So it's, my thirty five dollar uh, membership, mm-hmm. about I forget the percentage, but the the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has one of the highest percentages of membership dollars that go directly into program program. Yeah, yeah. yeah like it's usually in the yeah yeah it's it's usually right around ninety percent. So which is most organizations aren't even close to that. So that that's incredible, but. My $35, you know, 30 or 32 of it is going directly to programs like that. Yep. But and then, it also generates another 30 to $60 three. of matching yep. funds. Yep. And so, you know, it's just... Again, I've, I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it. If you're an elk hunter and not a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, uh, I, I just can't see a reason why that would happen. So I would encourage us, all of us, as elk hunters, to support the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation for reasons exactly like that. 611000 yeah. of member dollars turns into $2.57 million dollars for elk habitat. And so with that, they're going to do 14 projects
0: across all kinds of different counties, and that's going to improve almost 19,000 acres of habitat. And then a part of it is going to go to uh, funding uh, outreach, messaging, information, education about what's now being called Proposition 114, which is the... The prop the ballot initiative that is trying to reintroduce or introduce wolves into Colorado. Um, so it's it, you know it, it's pretty it's hard to say. Oh, that money that's going towards uh, an information and PR campaign related to wolves that that is on the ground work, but it's still part of their program work to. You know meet their their goal or their mission of to uh, conserve uh, elk, you know habitat for elk, other wildlife, and our hunting heritage
1: um, so and our hunting heritage is yeah. <laughs> being uh, being attacked, and the wolf yeah. thing is is definitely a part of that and, yeah, the, yeah, the, but the whole concept great. of of the term ballot
0: biology I mean, or that that in itself, I think, is is a trend w- w- that does not benefit the scientific management of wild places and wild things. So, I agree but, more. And then they list in here who their project partners are. It's the BLM. It's uh, these national forests: Arapaho National Forest, Gunnison, Medicine Bow Route national forest san juan and the white river national forest along with colorado parks and wildlife and the universities in colorado with their research groups so um pretty cool stuff and i i say that because i think it's important when we talk about elk as the focus of this podcast and and we try to give as much helpful information as we can I think it's imperative that we take some of that time and talk about what we can all be doing for elk and other wildlife. And for me, the conduit of using RMEF as the the conduit through which my money, my time, my volunteerism can be leveraged in a way like nowhere else. That's that's why I'm a... I'm, I'm a unapologetic supporter and promoter of <laughs> <laughs> and people will say newberg you're i mean you're like the the lap dog for rmef you know what
1: the cheerleader or something whatever like lap dog. <laughs> I,
0: and i make no apologies for it i am i know what good they do i see it every place i go i and so Anyhow, go to RMEF.org and become a member if you're not already. Or if you want to upgrade, go ahead and do that. Or if you just want to make a donation because your banquet, your fundraiser got canceled this year, send them some money. Whatever yep. you send them is probably going to get leveraged threefold on top of what you donated. So awesome. I'll quit being the lap dog now.
1: You're good. I I don't like lap dogs, so, but if if we're going to have a lap dog, that's probably a good organization to.
0: Well, I I say that because I'm sitting here looking at my 17 year old white cockapoo that is barely able to stand up saying, Will you get off that podcast so I can come and sit on your lap? Uh, That's. That's how lapdog came to my mind. My wife is <laughs> heading off to Oregon to see her mother and her sister. She's she's spent the last thirty six hours with me since I got home from Nevada, and I think she's like, man, that's thirty six hours a hard time. I got to get out of here. So <laughs> when when she leaves, I'm in charge of keeping her dog alive until she gets home. So. Man, that's uh, a tall that order. Little lap, it, like. it, it is. Uh, that little lap dog better still be breathing by the time she gets home, or uh, my marriage hangs in the balance. And <laughs> if my marriage hangs in the balance, this podcast is probably hanging in the balance. At least my participation in it. So and elk season in general, man. <laughs> oh yeah, my elk season a could lot be done on this. Man, don't yeah. die here, Lily dog. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't die. <laughs> or if you're going to die, die, <laughs> die when Mom gets home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh gosh.
1: <laughs> well, have we kept them long enough, Corey? You know, I I hope that everybody is as fired up about elk season as I am right now. Just talking about those bulls bugling and being in their bedrooms and going searching for the cows, I don't I don't know how I can make it 11 more days till opening day. Yeah. Well, uh you'll have to you don't have any
0: choice and i'm going to send Dale to to remedial mountain or uh, motorbike training before he comes <laughs> to film you in my but job just- description when I hire these guys i don't tell them they got to be the Brad Lackey, the old uh, supercross guy from the 1980s it, you know it, it's not like you got to go to the Brad Lackey course of mountain motorbiking. Gosh, how far uh, back do you have to go to to
1: know who Brad Lackey is? Uh that's probably about 1980. Okay. That's, I mean I, I was, was more the Damon Bradshaw uh that that time frame which you know was later oh, 80s God. early 90s into the oh. 90s and now I don't even know who uh, it is but yeah cuz I had a 1980
0: Yamaha 125 enduro. I think it was the XT or X whatever <laughs> it was. I just about killed myself on it one summer. I had it all of about three months and I sold it. It was, wow. yeah, I am not a motorcycle guy. I went over, I still have two scars on my belly where me and Bob Olson went over the handlebars. Uh, we, <laughs> I, I I bought a motorcycle. I, I had no training, anything. What do I do? I get in the soft sand out behind the airport and we're really smoking. I mean, first of all, you shouldn't have someone on the back with you problem number one weren't wearing any helmets coming into this corner in soft sand what do i do i hit the front brake <laughs> and well we go flying through the jackpines. and when you go over the handlebars with someone on the back their weight rubs your stomach over those two bolts from the forks that hold the handlebars on and so i woke up with no shirt on and two great big scars or, or bleeding wounds across my stomach And uh, a lot of dirt and sand in my mouth. Fortunately, I didn't lose any teeth. Bob and I will kind of come to, we're looking at each other like, what the heck just happened? I'm like, I don't know. Man, that happened fast. So two other uh, similar incidents that summer. And I said, you know what? This thing's for sale. So, but at the time I thought I was going to be, I bought all the, you know, you used to have to buy the, the magazine at the magazine rack. I bought all these motocross magazines. And I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> going to be me someday. For your and, Yamaha
1: Enduro 125 XT. <laughs> yep.
0: Yep. And um, uh, so the guy who was the popular guy at the time was Brad Lackey. So that's where I came up with that. That was like, I think that was 1979 or 1980. About, wow. yeah, yeah. So somehow I survived that. You know, as Norman McLean wrote, that he said, We owed the world the tragedy. Mm-hmm. We just didn't know it. Well, I almost paid the world my debt with the tragedy at that point. But somehow we missed that great big rock there and we just went in, flew into some soft landing in the jackpines, some little small jackpines, and picked up the motorcycle, kick started it, and off it went. And
1: Bob said, I'll walk. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was, you know, Donnie, the poor guy, just that, that incident, my first thought was, I wish I had my phone out and was videoing this, but really, really quickly right after that was, oh my gosh, I might not have a hunting partner this year. uh, I, I walked up there and I said, are you okay? And he's like, I said what, what's hurt? And he's like, I think just my ego. And I'm like, man, there is no ego here. What you just did. If the thing that's hurt is your pride, we got really lucky. Yeah. And, uh, and we did. He caught his knee on the handlebars, the motorcycle bucked him over the hill and it, it was swollen up pretty good. Uh, but for what he went through, right. If we would have had, you know, if we'd have been hunting and had the bows on our backs, we would have been. In a world of hurt right there, but we're, we're smart enough. We learn from those experiences and we know not to go down that with a bow on our back. So, okay. We, well, we paid, we paid a partial tragedy there. It could have been really bad. Who's we? Well, me and Donnie. I would have, I would have, I would have not had a hunting partner. I'm, I'm as much a victim here as anybody. We is his name, Donnie or Don. Wee? Huh? We, we, that's,
0: kind of, that's kind of like my wife. We have a joke in our house. She says, we ought to fix that. And so sometimes she calls me, we, because she'll say, you know, we, we ought to put a new deck on, on the back or we, we ought to this or we ought to that. And it always means Randy ought to do this. So when she wants to humor me, she says, Hey, we, I, I need your help. So I'm, I'm we, I'm Randy and I'm we, it sounds like Donnie is Donnie and we in, in Corey's world. No, we're a team. We're a team. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Well, appreciate your time
1: today, Corey. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, for listening folks. And, uh, if you happen to find yourself out elk hunting before, uh, before we get to visit with you again on another episode, good luck. And, uh, shoot straight chase the bugles and september only comes once so soak it up right yeah don't be cutting firewood in september
0: oh no 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 if you're cutting firewood in september you've lost your man card as far as your hunter card i guess you call it you know we always say man card at our shop because all we have are our guys who work there and oh i i hired uh uh, a female employee that starts in September so we won't be able to say man card anymore we'll have to call it something else but if you're cutting firewood in September you've lost your hunter street cred yep how's that
1: yep. I look for firewood and I mark them I, I take note of where they're at but man I I do not run a chainsaw in September no I don't, I don't run a chainsaw at all anymore unless it gets me back in closer to the elk but.
0: yeah well, yeah. If you got to cut the trees that have blown down in the in the Forest Service road or something, yep. but as we're as we're sitting here, I'm in shorts today. I'm looking at this deep running scar across my thighs, right <laughs> above yep. my knee, that was from a John's Rood 621 chainsaw. <laughs> back, back when my family made all teenagers were required to work in the woods in the summer, but. So we went to the hospital. I got stitched up and we still made it walleye fishing that afternoon. So it wasn't a total loss. Got to have priorities. Yeah. So when someone says, Randy, why don't you cut firewood? All I do is I slide my pant leg up and point to that big scar above my knee and say, there you go. That's what happens when accountants try to cut,
1: you know, run a chainsaw. (laughs) Yeah. uh well i've uh, i've got half of my winter's wood in already this summer and that's part of my workout program for elk season but i am mm. officially done with firewood until after elk season yeah. i've got all my winter firewood
0: in it's called natural gas that comes through a little pipe into the house i turn <laughs> up the furnace and boom warms up the house uh just like magic
1: yeah so Anyhow, we better uh, let's Man, let these we should, people go. We Sorry, could digress and go down rabbit holes for hours here. And we've proved that for several years now. But, yep, yeah. let them go. Good luck this fall. And uh, we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks, folks. Take care.